Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If Tom's going to tell for it, even if they don't. It is Thursday, August the 26th, 2021. This is episode 2944 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, being this late in August, next week when we come back, it will still be August for a couple days, but by Wednesday next week, it will be... September. The year is marching on. We need to be working on our freedom, our liberty, our self-sufficiency, our financial independence, and everything else. You know what's happening. I've been teaching this since 2008. Life is not a sliding scale. You are either moving ahead in life, in all the things that are meaningful to you, or life moves you backwards. There's no static here. You, go, you don't just stay. You actually have to put effort in. You have to put effort in to stay where you are. And if you're going to put effort in anyway, you might as well put in a little bit of effort to just get 1% better every day. That's, that's a huge improvement every year. If you get 1% better every week, that's a huge That's huge every year. Hell, if you can do 10% better in your life every month, it's huge. 120% a year. Or life can move you back even further than that. And that's what happens to most people. A lot of times they even, you know, it's, it's, it's what I talk about with death, with debt looking like cancer in a lot of ways. You can have a person, their body is riddled with cancer, but it hasn't started to actually show physically yet. And if that person doesn't maintain their health, doesn't get checked out, etc., by the time you find out they have cancer, it's too late. And debt can work that way. You see people in, in deep in debt, but they look like their life is great. They're in country clubs. They have brand new cars. They live in fancy houses. But one thing goes wrong, and financially, they're destroyed. Life works like that as a whole. That's just a microcosm of life. And so people can look like life's not moving them backwards. But every day, just a little bit, it's happening. And how do you know if it's happening? You know. You know. When you sit down at the end of the week and you think about what just went on that week, you know if you're a little bit better or a little bit worse than you were when the week started. You don't like to look at it. No one likes to look at it. No one likes to analyze it. You don't have to make a spreadsheet. You, I mean, all that stuff can be helpful, budgets, etc. But in the end, we know intrinsically. And when you don't want to look at it, you know why you don't want to look at it. You don't want to see what the answer is. So... Build that life. Another thing about September, you know what's coming in September, right? Uh, within a couple weeks, maybe three weeks, I will have where you can buy tickets for the fall workshop. Fall workshop is coming. It will be the week of November the 11th, which it almost inevitably is every year. Just when Dorothy and I sit down and think about like how much time we need to get ready, what's going on, how close we are to Thanksgiving. Um, we always decide between the first or second week of November, and it always ends up that we decide the second week of November because it gives us one more week. And this year, we're going to go on two vacations. So we already went on vacation in the spring. We're going in the fall, so we really want that extra week. So it will be, arrival date will be Wednesday, the 10th of November. The workshop dates officially will be the 11th, 12th, and 13th. 
and get the hell off my property day, Sunday, uh, the 14th, uh, by 11. And if you don't leave, then one of our staff members will eject you just because we have to put our lives back together uh, as we head into uh, those weeks that then span into the holidays. So, like, the reason I, I said that is to get people, you know, jazzed up because it's going to be a great workshop yet again, and they always sell out. It's good to know they're coming because that way if you really want to come, you can probably come. Last year, it literally sold out in a matter of seconds. And by adding some seats when I got figured some things out, like it was really like less than five minutes we had – Um, 65 seats sold, and then with staff, we were like 80 people. And that is capacity. Uh, we're going to do that again this year. I am interested in hearing from people that want to be instructors. I'm not taking everybody, but if you'd like to be an instructor, what it will get you, if I choose you as an instructor, is you will have a guaranteed ticket. You still have to pay to come, but you'll get a guarantee. A lot of people will really envy you, okay? I'm, I'm not going to have a huge number of instructors, but I am open to it. If you want to pitch me, email me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Put TSPC on the subject line and pitch me your class. And, the, and you need to be concise but detailed, like one paragraph. What is the title of your class? How will you deliver it? What is the value? And then if I want to know more, I'll ask. And I may say, hey, you know what? Um, give me two minutes of audio. Like, pretend you're teaching this class. You give me your two-minute intro. Because um, I need to make sure that the quality is there. And I'm reaching out to some specific people as well. Uh, and we have typical instructors that, that teach, and, and, and they'll be here again. Pugliano, John Pugliano will probably be here, uh, unless something goes wrong. He's almost always here. Uh, Nick Ferguson, et cetera. So we're going to have some really cool stuff this time around. Just a little extra intro. With that, let's get on into what, what are we going to talk about today? Well, Doc Ken Berry is going to talk about should you transition off keto? Is that even a thing? Is there a misunderstanding there? And what do I think about this after Ken gives you his answer? We'll get that one. Derek Von Pietro is going to talk about swapping an engine in an older truck. I believe it's a square body Ford. Um, but doesn't really matter. Like the entire concept here is worth taking a look at. And there is something to this too. There are older vehicles that really can have new life breathed into them with a rebuilt or a, a new engine. And it's something to look at, and especially as we get more and more into technology that becomes cumbersome on vehicles. Darby Simpson's going to talk to you about doing something on the down low. Now, get your mind out of the gutter. Raising pigs in a semi-urban environment on the down low. Amy Dingman is going to talk about keeping younger children from disrupting older children while homeschooling. I have some thoughts on this myself as we deal with it right now. Of course, we have a 5-year-old and a 10-year-old. It's a little easier than the person asking the question of Amy. And Amy's got more chillins than I do, so she's got more experience there. Nicole Awesome Sauce will talk to you about being a prepping badass. Well, versus a reality that we can always do more and give you her experience with a recent course she took, that tactical response, that wasn't how to shoot people, but how to help people who might have been injured or shot or some other serious injury until such time as the real medical professionals can get there. Sean Mills is going to talk about choosing where to mount your gear for your solar project. And I'm going to talk to you about a quote of the day that I'll go ahead and, and give you right now from Ayn Rand. Um, 
and I love this quote, and it's going to fit in. It just fit in perfectly with the song of the day that I'd already picked. And when I get to this, I'll kind of do it all together. The song of the day and my anchor segment uh, will will come at the very end of the show. Uh, the song is called, well, I'll go ahead and tell you, Bachman Turner Overdrive, Taking Care of Business. But I'm not going to tell you how it ended up on the radar this week to be on the show. And the quote by Ayn Rand is, The question isn't who is going to let me. It's who is going to stop me. So strap in. We are going to have an excellent show. Let's go ahead and kick off Dr. Ken Berry on transitioning once you meet your weight goals as far as keto diets. Hello, Jack and friends. This is Dr. Ken Berry. Today I'm answering a question for Christy. Uh, Christy says, I've been doing keto and have reached my goal weight. Congratulations, Christy. How do I transition to maintenance? Uh, detail, I've been keto for almost two and a half years and have lost slightly more than 60 pounds. The first year I was just trying to eat low carb and high fat, but have been tracking everything on Carb Manager for the past year. I've been staying under 20 grams net carbs and under 1,523 calories. I also only eat roughly between 1 p.m. and 7 p.m. So Christy's not only using very low-carb diet, she's also using intermittent fasting, which is a great combination. I'm now at my goal weight. I don't want to lose any more weight. What is the best way to maintain my weight and continue eating healthy? So this is this is a great question, and, and the confusion around this has come because keto was initially popularized as a weight loss diet. But keto and carnivore both are actually on the spectrum of a proper human diet. They are weight optimization diets, not just weight loss diets. I've seen people gain weight on keto or carnivore if they, in fact, needed to gain weight. So, Christy, what I would advise is to keep eating uh, your keto diet. Eat, eat all of the good high-fat, high-protein, very, very low-carbohydrate foods that you love. Eat them until you're full Hopefully you're starting to incorporate some exercise into your routine now that you actually feel like it after losing 60 pounds. But you, you don't need to add more carbs back into your diet unless you want to gain weight. And if you want to gain weight, then add back some carbs, and that's exactly what will happen. Keto is not a weight loss diet. It is a weight optimization diet. It's going to move you towards your ideal body weight, whether you're overweight or underweight. So you don't ever have to modify or transition your keto diet. Just keep eating it, and you'll stay right at your ideal body weight. Hope this helps, Christy. This is Dr. Barry. Talk to you guys next time. So I, I agree with Ken, but um, there are people that can eat 30 or 40 net carbs a day, and they won't put weight back on. There is a, a point where you start to reverse all the good you've done, okay? I am of the belief at this point that the best thing you can do is just stay in a keto lifestyle for your entire life. It is the most sustainable thing that you can do. And then I also kind of look at having like a cheat day or allowing a slightly larger carbohydrate allowance and all as being a lot like drinking, and it'll make sense here in a second. And what I mean by that is there's people that, you know, they can have a, a drink or two on Friday night, and that's it. And there's people that, you know, they can have a, a drink or two on Friday night and when they go out to eat, and that's that's fine. And they don't they don't lose control. 
And then there's people that they, they develop, you know, out, they become alcoholics. And it is very seldom a person who goes into full-blown alcoholism can ever socially responsibly drink again. And every individual, regardless of what, you know, some 12-step program says or whatever, every individual in the end makes this choice for themselves. And if you cannot control the consumption of alcohol, then your, your, your choice needs to be not to consume at all because when you have that one beer, you have that 12 beers, and then you go on a five-day bet, like that type of thing. That is a real thing. And that's true of any substance. Food is a substance, and specifically sugar is addictive. And the amount of sugar available to humans in the modern day far exceeds anything nature ever provided us. And there are people that if they start down the pasta, pizza, etc. path at all, they will become consumed and they'll go right back and destroy everything that they did well. If that is you, then you need to approach diet the way an alcoholic approaches alcohol. There is no sugar. There is no carbs, uh, what have you. And so I think everybody has to make that decision for themselves, and then you have to be careful. Now, the one thing I do want to point out that Ken kind of inferred there that's totally important to understand, you will not lose too much weight eating keto. Now, if you're doing caloric restriction, that's probably what you need to come off of when you transition. And then watch your weight. And if you start to put it back on, then maybe rein it back in a little bit. But keep the carbs down to nothing or very minimal, and you're going you're gonna to live a great life. And I want to go back to this whole idea of this transitioning. Like We think that keto is this, this unusual way to eat. While for the vast majority of time that humans have been on the planet as humans, it is how we have eaten. It is how we have eaten because all these sources of, of carbohydrate, and again, you, you, you can't keep doing what they've taught you and trained you to do in school. Do not separate carbohydrate from sugar. Do not say, okay, well, a donut is sugar and rice is carbohydrate. It's comp you know, brown rice is complex carbohydrate. It's bullshit. You give me a pound of bread, you give me a pound of sugar, I will make you the same amount of ethanol with a still and fermentation. It's sugar. So this is not some weird way to eat. This is the natural human way to eat, which is why Ken has stopped calling it keto and calls it a proper human diet. All right, next up, got one on truck engines for Derek. Hey, TSP listeners, Derek here from AffordableDCGenerators.com. I've got a truck question from Jason, so let's just get into it. All right, question for Derek. Square body Chevy engine swap, 12-valve Cummins, or a 6-liter slash 8.1-liter gas V8? I know Derek is a square body Chevy enthusiast. I'd like to hear his opinions on the aforementioned engine swap options. Thanks, Jason. All right, right up my alley. Let's just define some of the things Jason is talking about. So what's a square body Chevy? That's a 73 to 87, which is really to 91. So they made a pickup truck, which is basically a two-door short box, two-door long box, four-door long box, blazer, and suburban from 73 to 87. Now Chevy extended the blazer suburban and one ton variants till 91 so that's basically the body style we're, de we'll, we're dealing with here square bodies right now are fetching all kinds of money uh, one just because every market is completely screwed up right now and two they kind of have a cult following so they're really getting the money right now 
these are great platforms. Uh, you know, the styling, you're either liking it or you're not. You know, you're not a Chevy guy, you're a Dodger Ford guy, you know, whatever. If it's your cup of tea, then this is the vehicle to go after because the trucks after that, so the 88s and 92s, and they go up. Um, people prefer to the styling of the older trucks. And uh, if you're a four-wheel drive guy, they went from uh, straight axles to independent front suspension, and they're kind of junk, I hate to say it. Um, so if you're a Chevy guy, they really, the last real truck they made was a 91 or, or 87. <laughs> so that's why uh, people like them. Now, why would we swap an engine? Uh, we really were just looking for some, some modern power, some better fuel economy, uh, the parts availability are better when we're talking about using an engine built within the last 10 or 20 years. And you just want to be cool, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I, I've swapped engines in my Chevy trucks. So, yeah, I mean, there's something about it. We're getting rid of that older V8. You know, those small block V8s were great engines, the old 350s. So if we're talking like the 80s trucks, um, you know, they made like 190, 200 horsepower. Um, they, they're not bad, but by today's standards, they're definitely lacking. So before we get into the, the three different engines he gave me, let's just talk about doing an engine swap on a vehicle. And really the misnomers of that, uh, you see it on TV or maybe on the Internet. You see stuff in a magazine, and it looks pretty straightforward. You're like, oh, yeah, you rip the old engine out, you get this kit, and you drop the new one in, and you're all done. And you're like, oh, yeah, I could do that in a weekend. And it's like, well, this is all depending upon your, your knowledge and capability, and What's your workspace? Like, yeah, you could do it in a weekend if you had, like, a garage with a lift and you had every single part laid out and you had a, maybe a buddy or two and you were just going to bang it out. But I tell you, like, it's it's not as easy and straightforward as it looks. I did the 8.1 swap on my 84 Suburban, and, you know, I'd pick away at it on weekends and stuff, and it took, like, over a year, and it's a lot more money than you think. You would almost think, like, okay, if I think it's going to cost me three grand. Might as well just budget 45 because it's always going to go over by like 50%. That's just like a general rule of thumb. So if you think you're capable of doing this and you've got the budget set aside, then maybe go ahead with it. So why is everybody big about the 12-valve Cummins? So this engine was back in the early 80s. You would find it mostly the most common application is going to be the Dodge Ram. So it had the Cummins 5.9. It's an inline 6. It's a turbocharged, mechanically injected diesel. So this engine, uh, if you look outside of the Dodge platform, I mean, you're going to find it in, like, agricultural equipment, generators, things like that. So it's a very common engine. Realistically, the only difference might be, like, the oil pan or the drive belt system, you know, the bracketry up front or the injection pump. So they might be governed differently. But other than that, they're pretty much the same. And they even made a little, little baby brother version, which is a 3.9 liter four-cylinder. Why do people like them? Well, they're dirt simple. So they typically only require one wire to run. So there's a heating grid that's in the intake. It's like a hairdryer heating element. And that's going to heat the air up when the engine's cold, when it's cold outside. And so you heat that up, and then you crank the engine over. It's like glow plugs, but different. Aside from that, it basically just needs a wire going to the injection pump, or there might be, like, mechanical variants of that on, like, agricultural equipment. So it has, like, a lever instead of a wire. But basically, it doesn't require anything to run. It's like all mechanical, no computer required. Once you get it going, it's just going to run. And it's going to run forever. So they're notorious for being very reliable, being a very high-quality piece. Now with technology, we have the ability to build an infinite amount of power out of them, really only limited by your wallet. So if you're looking for like a 1,000-horsepower build, you know, if you got the checkbook, you can do that. 
So that's why people really like those Cummins engines. Now, the 6-liter is an LS. That goes back to the early 2000s. That's going to be used in pretty much any Chevy truck. You know, if that's a, a pickup, a Tahoe, a Denali, uh, some of those architectures used in the Corvettes. So all of those LS slash engines, the 6-liter is typically like a, a 2500 or 3500 series truck engine. So they've made thousands and thousands of them. They've made them for a really long time. Parts availability are great. They're a great platform. There's a reason why there's LS mania. They put these engines in anything because they make great power. They're reliable and they're dirt cheap because there's so many of them. Now, the 8.1 is a big block. They used it only for a couple of years in the early 2000s. You would only find it on the trucks. And they did make a limited production run on the Express fans and Suburbans, but those are super rare. You'll also find the 8.1s. I know they're in generators. I see them in, like, Kohler generators. Um, but they're also used in boats. It's the only gas V8 that survived the dock test, which is a test that's basically idling for a few minutes and then wide open throttle for a really long time and then back to idle, back and forth. Fingers crossed it doesn't blow up. So it's a very sturdy platform, and they make a ton of power. They are flat. So off idle, that thing makes a few hundred foot-pounds of torque, and it's just a monster. Swapping these in into an older truck, we'll just go through one at a time. <clears throat> the Cummins just doesn't fit. It's like 30-something inches tall from oil pan to valve cover, and so it's just gigantic, and it's very long. It's an inline six, and it originally wasn't designed for an inline six, so when you have to st stuff that into an engine bay, and don't forget, you also need a cooling fan, a radiator, and if we're turbocharging, we're talking an intercooler. So the intercooler has to go up front, and if you want air conditioning, there has to be a condenser in there too. At, at that point, you're past the grill. So physically fitting this engine in is really tough. You also want to make sure you have a one-ton truck to start with, because if we're talking about a half-ton Blazer or Suburban or something, like, you're going to blow the axles out of that thing the minute you hit the throttle. It's just not made for that power. And it also is really tough on the transmission. I mean, these are these are typically a medium-duty engine. Medium-duty meaning it's like class four and up. Like when you look at an international school bus or tow truck from that era, that's a medium-duty truck. They stuff that engine into a pickup truck. So it really doesn't belong in there. Dodge made it happen, even though it's Dodge and the rest of the truck really isn't capable of handling it. It's just a lot of engine for that size truck. So there's a lot of pros to using that engine, but it doesn't fit, and it's really expensive. So all the diesel bros with their big beards and flat caps, you know, are buying these things up because they want to put them in their vehicles. And so the price of a Cummins, you know, worn out is going to start at four or 5000 and one that's, like, still serviceable, you're almost hitting ten. So that's a lot of money for a project to start out. I mean, that's more than the truck is worth, probably, without the engine in it. So that's really the downside. The 6.0 is a great swap. You, there's a kit to do it. There's wiring harnesses that are available off the shelf. Like, this is probably the easiest and most turnkey project. It's going to be most likely the least expensive out of that group. And it's probably going to be the most manageable. So you swap that entire engine and transmission into it. You're going to get an AC compressor mounted on that. So if you want to go with air conditioning, you probably are going to, going to have that compressor already on there. It's going to be attached to a four-speed automatic with overdrive. So that's great if you don't already have that, and more than likely your transfer case for the four-wheel drive is going to bolt right up to it if it's a four-wheel drive transmission. So the motor mounts, the cross members, all of that stuff, 
is going to make it super easy. Since this engine is like the swap mania engine, everybody wants it, like the brackets for the drive belts and all that stuff, or if you want chrome, you know, like it's just endless. It's, it's all been done, and it's all available, and the pricing is really affordable. Now the 8.1. This is my favorite. This is why I use that in my old Suburban. It's a torque monster, and it's really just like bragging rights. I've got the largest engine ever made in a production vehicle, and it's kind of rare, so acquiring one is going to require a lot more work. Biggest problem if you want air conditioning is the compressor mounts down very low and far out. So if you want air conditioning, you have to locate a bracket set off of a van, and they're just non-existent. So not a problem if you do want to skip the air conditioning, but for me, I want this vehicle to be usable, so that's a deal breaker. You've got to find the bracket. I would almost buy the bracket before the engine just to be sure you got it. Other than that, it is almost identical to the old 454, so the cross members, the engine mounts, all that stuff, it just fits like a glove. You use the old big block 454 radiator, and it's like it's home again. I would say probably easier than the Cummins, but still a little more work than the 6-liter. So those are your options. Personally, I like the A1. It's my favorite, and I love blowing cars off the line with it in a, you know, like a 7,000-pound truck. It's like driving a muscle car, but it's a four-door Suburban. So that's my favorite. I think if I had to do it again, just from simplicity and budget-wise, the 6-liter, I'd probably go that route. I would avoid the Cummins at all costs. Just I love the engine, but it's just not the right truck for it. Don't forget, budget in, the wiring harness required for the gas engines, and drive shaft refit. That'll set you back a 1000 bucks, regardless of which, which option you go with. So, Jason, I hope that steers you in the right direction. Good luck with your project. Thank you for the questions. Next up, let's talk about raising those piggies for pork on the down low with farmer Darby Simpson. Hey there, everyone. Darby Simpson of Grass-Fed Life back to answer another question that came in via email, this time from Adam on the West Coast in the suburbs of San Francisco. Adam says, I am looking for tips on raising a couple of pigs in a semi-urban area without drawing attention. Is this practical, and if so, what factors do I need to consider? Adam goes on to provide some details, saying that they live on half acre in the suburbs just north of San Francisco. This used to be county land until a few years ago when it was annexed by the city. I'm sure city ordinances would frown upon pigs. On the other hand, the neighbors all keep to themselves. No HOA Karens? Very much a don't bother me and I won't bother you attitude around here. We don't have enough pasture to move them regularly and they will have to stay in a pen. I'm thinking a scaled-down version of Salton's deep litter pig composting setup. He goes on to say this was his wife's idea. Uh, she actually softened to this uh, after raising poultry last year, recently saw the prices of meat in the grocery store and said, hey, maybe we should try and raise a couple of pigs. Adam wants to know, what are my thoughts? Well, uh, I tell you, Adam, it's, it's an interesting idea. And normally on a, on a half acre, I would say go for it if that half acre were more rural. Now, given I don't know exactly how populated the area you live in is, and I understand that, you know, your neighbors keep to themselves, uh, here's, here's the big mitigating factor. Uh, pigs stink. And uh, if they're going to particularly have to live in a pen, yes, you can try the deep litter thing, 
I, particularly with you know how dry it is out there and everything else, I ooh, you, you would have to use a lot of litter. I mean the the odor from pigs is way more pungent than any other farm animal. So I think if you could move them around some, and if you could kind of clean up behind them and compost behind them, or you know put some litter over the top of their business. Uh, to help it compost and kind of trap it and, and move them around a bit, maybe this would be a bit more plausible. Um, the other thing I really worry about is uh, pigs are rascals. I, I don't know if you know this, but they're like really stubborn, pig-headed animals, pun intended. Uh, and they, they like to do mischievous things like get out of their fenced-in area uh, if, if they can at all. Um, and loose pigs in an urban environment uh, probably isn't going to go too well with your neighbors. Now, that's not a guarantee that they're going to get out and get loose. I just, to me, pigs are very much a rural type of animal. Uh, you'd have an easier time convincing me if you if you had enough pasture, and I'm sure you don't because you're in California um, and it's shriveling up. Uh, from a lack of rain, but um, you'd have an easier time convincing me to, to say do a cow on your property than, than you would pigs. Um, I just I think it's problematic. Now you go on in in some of these details to say that um, you know a friend is raising a couple of steers and maybe we should make room in the freezer to buy a quarter beef. Yes, I agree. You should, actually, I would say buy a half. I don't know how big your family is. Uh, a half beef from us, if that animal's about a thousand pounds finished, is roughly like 160 to 170 pounds of stuff. That sounds like a lot until you do some math and you figure out, oh, that's only about three pounds of meat per week. So if we eat beef once, maybe twice a week, if we're like mixing it into something else, um, like, you know, a little bit of meat and some shish kebabs or stir fry or something, then we'll go through that beef in a year. So I, I'd get a half. Uh, back to the pig thing. Could you raise pigs on your on your buddy's place or the people that are raising these steers? Could you set up shop out there and say, "Hey, I'd like to use your land. You know what? I'll lease the land from you, or if you let me use the land, uh, we'll get two pigs, and um, you know, I'll I'll raise one for us and one for you. Something like that. I think that's a better fit if it's not too far away." I, I would suggest if you want to do, you know, uh, commutable farming, that that not be more than maybe 15, 20 minutes at the most each way. Uh, I'm okay doing that with pigs and cattle. I'm never, ever, never, ever okay doing that with chickens uh, because you just have to check on them so much, so many times per day. The watering is, is so key. But maybe... Maybe there's a solution where you could raise a couple of pigs on some ground that is in a true rural area where this is going to be a non-issue. Uh, maybe it's zoned agricultural, so you really can't get in trouble with the authorities. Um, I just think the smell will really throw you a curveball. Your neighbors are going to smell it. Your neighbors are not going to like it. And the neighbors might call the department of making you sad and turn you in. Um, and then you've also got 
you know, the logistics of, okay, I got to get them into a livestock trailer and I got to get that set up, uh, get them loaded. There's just, I, 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 dude, I love that you want to do this. I love that you want to do this. My instinct is don't do it there. Again, I don't know how dense your neighborhood is, but if it's a neighborhood and everybody's got a half acre lot, you're not going to hide pigs. Your neighbors are going to know that you have pigs, unless you've literally got a six-foot privacy fence all the way around your place, and you've got magical pixie dust to uh, to override the smell. <laughs> okay. Um, that deep litter thing, yeah, that can kind of work. But keep in mind, like, you know, my, my understanding is you know, Salatin does that in the winter, right? So it's colder outside. The smells aren't as pugnant. You don't really have a true winter where you're at. Uh, he does in the Shenandoah Valley. I mean, it's, it's like it is here. It, it gets cold. You get freezing temperatures. That really does mitigate the smell. Um, it can make it worse when it gets really super wet, but by and large, it helps mitigate it, and you're, you're composting that in a barn, in an enclosed area. Um, I just I don't know about doing it in an open pen in California. Maybe somebody's done it that I'm not aware of, but um, I really would I'd I'd look to lease a little bit of ground somewhere, rent an, you know an acre. I I don't know what an acre leases for out there, but even if it's a couple hundred bucks, which would be you know pretty high, um, I think that's worthwhile. You're still going to save money versus going to the grocery store, and it's going to be way better than anything you can get at the grocery store. One tip, Adam, if you do this before you pull the trigger on everything, you need to you need to find and select a butcher and get some dates lined up well in advance. And I've talked ad nauseum on the podcast. You can find all of our old podcasts on the website at grassfedlife.co about how long it takes to raise a pig and how many pounds they need to be and how to go about finding a butcher. In fact, we got a free guide on our website about how to select a butcher. Um, you want to make sure you get all your ducks in a row. Okay. So I think if you want to do something else on your property and your wife's open to doing more things, maybe you look at doing rabbits, right? Um, if you wanted to be like, you know, super homesteady and a little bit less conspicuous, if you felt like you could keep a milk goat in, that might be something to consider. I'm not a goat person. Just a thought. Um, you know. Just some ideas. Maybe try something different than a pig. I feel like there's probably a better fit. and Maybe do them somewhere else. So that's what I got for you, Adam. I hope you found this helpful. Hey, uh, if you're listening to this and you would like to get a question answered in 10 minutes or less, shoot me an email, darby at grassfedlife.co, and you might hear it on the podcast just like Adam did. You can also check out all of our resources on our website at grassfedlife.co. We've got free courses. We've got a free farming mini course. We've got paid-for courses. We've got many homesteading courses that are really inexpensive on things like this, on how to raise homestead pigs. The mini course, actually not that many. It's a few hours long uh, for 39 bucks, And we teach you all the tips and tricks you need to successfully raise pigs on your homestead. We've also got one on chickens as well. So anyway, thanks for sending this in, Adam. Love getting these questions. Please keep them coming, guys, and you might just hear them on the podcast. Thanks so much, everyone. Have a wonderful day.
Yeah, I really don't know how this would play into what this individual wants to do. But I, I will say this about raising pigs. The gold standard would be pastured pork, rotated daily, where the pig can get a significant uh, component of their diet from the land. That is the gold standard. Um, however, there's a long history of raising a pig or two. And more of uh, like a you know a, a, a pig pen uh, has to be mucked out area and pigs will not poop where they sleep and lay down they will you know poop to the front and then composting that material uh, with bedding etc and feeding pigs scraps and things like that is very historically accurate and I I think a pig and you're looking at like grow out from like a weanling to harvest size being seven to eight months. Uh, if, if everything's built properly and, and, and things are nice for the pig, can live a pretty good life like that for a pig. It certainly will live a better life than a pig at Smithfield or some other giant pork processing place where the pig lives in a pen where it can't even turn around or something like that. And the quality of that meat would exceed anything you can buy in a store. You'd have to go to a Darby Simpson who had raised a pig to, to buy a pork product that would be better than what you could do by controlling the diet and the life and the happiness of the pig. So I don't know if that works for this person, but I would not 100% say I'm not going to raise pigs unless I can put them on pasture. But I'd have to really want to do it. And I'd have to do a mathematical computation. And I think Darby's on to something. He says, maybe you need to work with your friend that you want to buy this half for a quarter beef from or something. like, Or maybe you just need to find somebody doing the pigs. Maybe if you're... And this is something we have to look at. Like, is my setup really ideal for the thing that I want? And if it is, then maybe I'll do it. And is it like 70% of ideal, then maybe I do it. Like, there's a, there's a point where the money is better spent with someone who does it than trying to do it yourself. And then maybe you do something, maybe in, in an environment like this, maybe a, a, a quail stack or uh, rabbits for adjunctive meat makes a lot more sense. But I just wanted to throw out that I don't think you're some kind of evil bastard if you raise pigs the way people have raised pigs for hundreds of years. Um, if you go look at, like, Wartime Farm, that documentary by the BBC, Uh, Ruth Goodman, I think, is the is the lady that's the kind of the head uh, of that group. Um, Ruth something, and there is an episode where they talk about pig shares and how those work. And the way they raise a pig there is it's not perfect, but it's way better than Smithfield, Hatfield, etc. Anyway, uh, with that, let's take another one. Next up, we got a question for Amy Digman on dealing with like you know, multi-age homeschooling. Especially when you have the little ones. The little ones that want to do everything that Big Brother or Big Sister does, but they're not really ready yet. And maybe they're too young to occupy with their own schooling, right? And then they become pests. I have some experience with this, and I'll give you my thoughts, though my pest problem is easier to deal with than this child pest problem. And I, I, if anybody takes that the wrong way that, um, I am being negative toward children, you're just a moron and you, You must be new to this show, so I'll, I'll give you some leeway if you are. When I say that, I'm talking about the behavior of the way a young one can be a pest to their brother or sister. Let's take it. Uh, here we go, Amy. 
Hello again, TS Peers. This is Amy Dingman from the Farmers Kind of Life podcast and website here to answer a question about homeschooling. This question comes from Rose, and her question was, how do you keep your younger children from being a distraction during school time? Details. I have five, three, and one-and-a-half-year-old girls. Most of our schooling is memory work through songs and games or outside practical studies, and the three-year-old participates to a great degree. I do work on second-grade math and cursive writing and reading separately with my five-year-old for 15 to 20 minutes per subject at separate times. But as soon as I do, the little two go crazy, especially the three-year-old who feels she should be doing all the same schoolwork as her big sister. If I put on a show to keep them occupied, my five-year-old won't focus because she wants to watch, and taking out different toys or letting them play outside only lasts moments before a fight breaks out. All three still nap or rest daily at the same time. I'm expecting baby number four in three months and would really appreciate any advice to get things a bit less chaotic for our school time. Thank you, Rose. Well, Rose, the great thing about homeschooling is having your family all together, but that's also the struggle of homeschooling, right? Especially when the kids are younger. Now, I only have two kids. Um, they're now 17 and 18. They're only 12 months apart, so this isn't something that we really had to deal with, but I certainly remember watching friends with larger families struggle with it. Um, so my answers to you today are things I remember working for them, and I also did crowdsource a couple uh, answers from other homeschooling parents. So you've actually already tried the most common suggestion for this situation, which is using other things to entertain the younger kids, you know, like having a box of toys or busy bags or top other trays or some other activity that only comes out for the younger kids when it's time for the older kid to do the lessons that you don't necessarily want the younger kids involved in. But some of your issue is that your oldest is close enough in age to the younger kids that your oldest is like, wait a second, how come I got to do math when my siblings get to play with that special box of stuff? If there is something that your younger kids like that your oldest kid doesn't or that she's not into anymore, that's a good time to take advantage of this. But you you are in a, in a tricky situation here because of your kids' ages. So a couple things I would suggest here or just some things to think about as possibilities. I would say you could consider doing lessons with the older child while the younger kids are napping or resting. You did mention they're all still napping or resting at the same time, which is awesome because it's a break for you. But if the uninterrupted lesson time is super important to you, you might consider changing the oldest's rest time into her lesson time. That's absolutely going to depend on your family's priorities with this. So that's something you could try. Something else to bring up is embracing the chaos of the younger kids being involved. Homeschooling multiple kids, especially when they're younger, is chaotic. And a month from now, there's going to be a new issue for you to deal with. You're going to have new issues with each new baby that's added. You're going to solve issues as each child grows and new things are going to crop up. That's the beauty and the chaos of having your kids at home to learn and do life. And I know that's not a practical tip. It's more of a keep it in perspective tip. When you're looking at the chaos that's surrounding you and you're thinking you have to fix it, consider the reality that that chaos is what this particular stage of life looks like. When your three-year-old wants to do math with your five-year-old and it's not helping anything, that's normal. That's just totally normal. And I know that doesn't fix it, 
But I think it's good to be honest and admit that that's kind of what this stage of life is. Another suggestion I would have is to maybe take a look at your expectations and maybe lower them just a little bit. I don't know what your state rules are, but where I live in Minnesota, we don't even have to report our kids until they're seven years old. We don't have to report them to the district until they're seven. So I have a friend who actually decided she wasn't going to start formal lessons until her oldest child reached that age, because that's how long it took to get her children's ages a little more manageable when it came to school. So she waited until her kids were seven and six and four, because that was totally different than trying to do formal lessons with a five and a four and a two-year-old. Now, your five-year-old might be able to sit for 20 minutes to do second grade math or cursive writing and reading at separate times, but it might not be sustainable or possible simply because of what's happening around her or other things that you have to deal with in your life, just because of the stage of life that you're in. Now, your oldest is not going to be behind if you slow down. I don't remember, I mean, talking about cursive, I don't remember learning cursive until I was probably nine or 10. And my kids were exposed to it way later than that. When my kids were five, we were doing reading and we were hanging out and we were making messes and we were exploring and we weren't doing a ton of structured lesson stuff. And that's not to say that structured lessons for younger kids are bad. You can do school however you want. That's the beauty of homeschooling. But teaching cursive writing to a five-year-old who's an only child would be completely different than trying to teach it to a five-year-old who has siblings who are trying to grab the pencil away from them. You know what I'm saying? So while it's really important that kids learn rules and boundaries and, hey, your sibling's trying to do their work right now, or, hey, oldest child, you really need to concentrate on your work right now, there's also something to be said for stepping back to take a look at the big picture and perhaps slowing down or taking a break simply because of where your family is in life. Something else I would suggest is to prioritize. Ten minutes of focus might be what you get at this point in your life before lack of interest or fighting between the younger kids creeps in. So what is the most important thing that you can accomplish with your lessons in 10 minutes? I mean, we're not talking about a 10-year-old here. We're not talking about a 13-year-old. We're talking about a 5-year-old. What's the most important thing that you want to accomplish with that child or have them accomplish today? Get that thing done, mark it off, and consider your day a success. And if it doesn't get done, make it tomorrow's goal. The last thing I guess I would bring up is to put away any any guilt or comparison that you're doing right now. Um, this is so common with homeschooling parents. I did it. We all do it, especially with our oldest kid. You know, we feel like we're not doing enough. We're going to be behind. We're afraid that people are going to think we should be doing more. We're afraid our kids should be further ahead. Or you, you have to prove to your mother-in-law or your sister or your neighbor that this works. You are in a really crazy busy time in your life right now. So try the tips that have been suggested here. If they don't work, it's okay. You're not failing. Or some of these tips, they might work for a couple days in a row. And then the next day, they don't work at all. It's okay. You're not failing. You are in this stage of life with your kids. You're doing life with little kids and you're going to move through all these crazy stages and it's going to be great. I hope that was helpful, Rose. Um, if you have any other thoughts, you can find my contact information at my website, afarmishkindoflife.com. And everybody else, hey, send your questions about homeschooling or family life or parenting. Send them to Jack for me to answer. I look forward to the next question. So we have a, uh, a five-year spread. And we didn't start homeschooling our grandson until last year. So he's just, he's, a, you know, we, we did it when COVID kicked in. We brought him in and we, we started doing, uh, homeschooling through the state school to finish the year because he was in school. 
And then as we went into the next year, we put him full-time homeschooling with Excellus Academy, which has been fantastic for us. And um, we had a little bit of problem with his sister. In that first year, she was four and he was nine. And we just came up with a real strict rule. When brother is doing school, you have to leave him alone. And if grandma is helping or grandpa is helping brother with school, you have to do your own thing. Now, with a two-year-old or a three-year-old, this may be a little harder than a four-year-old or a five-year-old like we're dealing with. So I understand that. But I think establishing that rule, even if it's not easily enforced or easily understood, establishing that rule now As the child matures, as they become older, it's not a new rule. It's a rule that they get better at following. And part of my parenting philosophy is every rule is designed to the benefit of the person that the rule applies to. Um, in this case, you might look at it and say, well, the rule that you can't pester your brother or your sister while they're doing their work really benefits the brother or sister who's not being pestered. To a degree, but self-control... And understanding that there are certain times we don't interrupt others is a valuable personal inter interpersonal skill. So I'm always trying to teach a child that my rule applies to you only as long as you need the rules. And I don't think there's too young an age to start to start saying that type of language, even if it's not yet understood, because they I, I'm very much a believer that children are like the athlete that you're trying to get them to jump over the three foot hurdle. And the best thing you can do is give them a three-and-a-half-foot hurdle. And if you let them smack into a three-and-a-half-foot hurdle enough times for a week and you put the three-foot hurdle back, they'll just go right over it. So we're always trying to make them just bring them up just a little bit from where they are. So by having this is what's expected, even if you fail, we're not going to throw you out in the street because you failed as a two-year-old, right? But like this is the expectation, and we're going to keep managing to the expectation. They'll meet the expectation long before you would expect that they would if you put the expectation there. They can't meet an expectation you haven't given them. right? And that doesn't mean you should expect that it's going to happen right away because it's not. But it means that you should be willing to put the expectation out there. So we just have that hard, fast rule. Brother, and, and, and now that she's five, right? Now that that's been ingrained starting at, like, you know, barely four for this long, when it happens... And I and I you know I happen to catch it and I'm I'm walking out there to get a cup of coffee or something and I'm like Tegan your brother's doing work do not pester him it's it's generally immediate she'll go find something else to do I think giving them something else to do giving them their own thing and I think making your children if they're going to be homeschooled as independent as possible in their learning as early as possible in their learning and teaching them project management and here's what I mean by that. You are going to have to give some guidance and help to your kids at some point during this process. Help them figure things out. So what you need to be able to teach your kid is you're working on this thing in science. You've gone as far as you can with it. You need help. Mom is dealing with baby. Okay? Put this down and work on history. Do something else. I don't care if you finish today's history. Work on tomorrow's history. Get ahead And when I'm available, now we can do this. This alone, if you can teach your children this, 
will make them infinitely more valuable as employees in the future workplace because I'm telling you as someone who's employed a shitload of people, I have had 25-year-olds that cannot do this without having their, their head and shoulders beat about them repeatedly and threatening their jobs to the point where they finally go, I better do this. This should be the most natural thing in the world. Jack gave me this assignment. I'm working on it. I need, oh, Jack's in a meeting. I'm going to get my head tore off if I interrupt him in a meeting. Here's another project or here's another piece of the project. I'm going to work on this. And when, when, when Jack's available, I'll go speak to him and say, All right, do you have a moment? And I'll, we'll, we'll deal with this problem then. And that way I haven't wasted the time I'm being paid to work. It's the same thing. And, and again, We put these high met metrics in front of children from a performance standpoint. We do not expect that they will meet them, but what we expect is that they will strive towards them from as early an age as possible. And this happens without conscious thought in homeschooling. A lot of homeschool parents are doing this exact thing, but they don't even know it's what they're doing because naturally in time, you know what Amy said, you figure it out as you go. They figure it out as they go and they start doing this. And this is why you meet that kid who's 14 or 15 years old And you speak to them, and you shake their hand or whatever, and you go, oh, you're homeschooled, and you mean it in a good way. This is why that happens. So that's my little add-on there. Uh, let's take another one. This one on being a prepping badass, or maybe not. It depends. Nicole, take it away. Howdy, TSP. Nicole Soss here from the Living Free in Tennessee podcast and Hollow Roast Coffee to talk to you about being a badass prepper. That's right. I'm a badass, aren't I? I mean, I'm on Jack Spierko's expert council. I show people how to process animals. I'm living off a homestead and getting a lot of my nutrition from right here on site. I can can food. I can dry food. I can even freeze dry food now. I've got medical supplies. I've got it all set up. I'm a badass. Or am I? You know, one of the funny things about coming into the world of taking control of your life and setting the foundation to be ready for the things that are most likely to happen, which is all Jack Spierko's podcast is about, is that there are many different places where you want to address to take care of yourself in the long run. We talk about fuel storage. We talk about food storage. We talk about handling shelter. We talk about making plans for if you need to leave, how to leave, different routes to get there, what documentation you need to take with you. We talk about making sure you have a clean water source. We talk about security, and we talk about medical preparedness. Well, a few weeks ago, I took an emergency medical class over at Tactical Response run by a fellow named James Yeager in Camden, Tennessee, and it was all about how to keep people alive long enough for the EMTs to get there if there's an emergency situation. And one of the reasons I took this class is when I looked at how well prepared I am, I mean, I, ha I, can, I can help you with your cold, with herbal remedies. I patch up all the animals here. I do it all on the medical side. And I looked at what could happen if there was a bad motorcycle wreck right outside my house, which is possible, or, heaven help us, an actual violent event, either a riot getting out of control or whatever, and there are people dying in front of me, what can I do to help? So I took this class, and I went in a little bit scared because it was covering stuff I didn't know, like how to stop bleeding with a tourniquet, 
how to, you know, help people breathe by putting a, a breathing device through their nose if their nose is swelling shut, things like that. It covered a lot of things, and it did it in the context of a violent act, which is not something I like to think about. I don't like to think about crazy people with guns or knives or baseball bats attacking other people and killing them, attacking other people with the intent to harm. And it's that that thing I don't like to think about that's the hardest thing to look at. And that's why over the years, as I've worked away at getting rid of debt and building my own business so I have stable ongoing revenue that I control, and as I've looked at ways to reduce my reliance on the commercial food system through growing food, what I haven't handled are two things. One, self-defense with my gun. Can I use my gun without shooting myself in the foot? Absolutely. Do I know what I'll actually do if somebody really attacked me? Not really, nor have I trained for that. Two, this kind of situation where keeping people alive, the thing I feel most called to do in an emergency situation, the thing I know I can keep cool-headed over, doing that when there are people around who may have evil intent. So I took this class. I was a little bit intimidated, but I went in and thought, I'm just going to have an open mind because I need the right mindset to handle emergency situations when they come up. We're only as good as our weakest skill, after all, right? And I took this class, and it was very hard for me whenever we did role-play situations where there was violence involved. But we did role-plays. We did them once. We did them twice. We did them three times. We did them so many times I lost count. And by the end of that class, I was confident of a few things. One, I'm right. I am the person who's probably going to help keep people from dying in a situation like that because I will render aid where a lot of other people won't. Two, I have a much better idea of what will happen to me when I'm scared and how I will function when I'm scared. And they joke in the class that your hands turn into flippers. They do. The, the other thing I realized in that class, though, guys, is this. I know I can get a tourniquet on myself or just about anybody else in just about any situation, whether I can see what's going on or not, whether there is a lot of pressure going on or not, whether I'm using an actual tourniquet or making one up from supplies I have on hand. And right at the end of that class, I heard the story about a kid at Columbine who was shot, arterial shot in the leg, and he made himself a tourniquet out of a, a lamp cord and kept himself alive until the EMTs got there. They saw that, took it off because you're not supposed to have tourniquets on things. Well, he just had it on for four hours. So he's in the ambulance going to the hospital bleeding out. He puts it on again, and he lived. If he hadn't have known to do that, that kid would have died. And that's just something that brought home for me why it's so important to look at how we're prepared for things that are likely to happen, how we're prepared for things that are less likely to happen. Like, I probably won't be in a violent situation like this, but I'm likely to be in a situation where somebody is injured in a way that would cause a lot of bleeding and now I know how to help. And now through the, the scenarios I took at Tactical Response, I know how I'll be under pressure. Because even if it's not the pressure of a bad guy, which is the hardest thing for me personally to face from a fear standpoint, it 
it means that the pressure of their loved ones yelling and people screaming and that sort of thing is something I know I can handle and I can still help. And I just get to put one more little chink in the step towards increased self-reliance, increased independence, increased ability and skill and knowledge to know that I can take care of myself and others when it's needed. So I know a lot of you who listen to this podcast, especially if you're new to the idea of prepping, may feel like all these people on the podcast are badasses and they do all this stuff. Well, you know what? We have weaknesses. We have weaknesses. We're not really badasses. We've just had longer to deal with the situation. And if you're somebody who's really well prepared and really well trained with that gun, but you have not bothered to take care of your financial situation or start figuring out how to store the food you will actually eat rather than MREs, now's a great time to take a look at that and address your weakness because we all have them. And if we are willing to look at our weaknesses, we can all do well as things come up and as things change in our lives. I just wanted to share that experience with you because it was such a powerful experience in my life taking the class. And I have an immense feeling of relief having addressed that fear and moved on to the next thing. Make it a great week. So there's a couple things I want to throw in on this real quick. One is when I was in the Army, uh, I got an opportunity to take a course uh, that I, to this day, am grateful that I said yes to when I had the opportunity to. And I, I was that guy that if I got an opportunity to go to a training, I went. Um, I knew I wasn't going to stay long term, and I wanted to get as much as I could. It was called Combat Lifesavers. And this made me kind of have some flashbacks to some of that training, et cetera, and some thoughts about it. And I I was like, I wonder if they still have that course. Has it changed? Whatever. It turns out the uh, self-study guide uh, – and it, it is definitely a little different. It's the same but different, man, that from back in, in the time that I took this course. Um, it's over 200 pages. It's available in PDF. You can download it and take a look at it. And it might help get your head in the right place. There will never be a substitute for training, but I just wanted to make that available. And I also wanted to talk about something else. There is knowing what to do and knowing when to do it. And if you're in a situation where there's a person who is uh, potentially going to die... Um, and there's a person or a, a, a person or two, and there's people that can, there's more than one person there. Then what you do is you do whatever you can do based on the training that you have to try to keep that person alive until some higher level of support gets there. When there are people, when there are people, the hardest part of that training was the understanding of um, triage and this person based on the situation is going to die. And I need to go keep... This person is going to live no matter what I do long enough for some other level of assistance to come. And this person will die without my help. And if I help them, they may not die. And this person will die without my help. But with my help, they probably are going to live. And prioritizing what you do and how you do it based on that type of a triage. It is a very difficult thing to, to, to realize that I might look at this person who's not dead yet, but I have a mass casualty situation, which is a far less likely thing. But there's a mass casualty situation right now in Afghanistan with a suicide bombing. And if you don't think that can happen here, I remind you of a song we played this week called Can't Happen Here. 
Um, in fact, I have a feeling, be it false flag or real, that we may be dealing with some shit like this in the next few years based on all the stupid shit we've just allowed to happen. And then there's the other side of it. There could be no guns, no bombs, no military, no uh, no violence, no anything. And you can still have a high casualty, moderate casualty, mass casualty event. You, it can happen in a massive multi-vehicle pileup. It can happen in a one-off car wreck. Uh, we had somebody that wrote in that some of the training they got similar to this uh, and things like uh, pressure bandages and quick clot stuff. Uh, where they ended up with somebody that had climbed into a garbage dumpster, if I remember right, and had a severe gash in their head, um, and they happened to be there and, and, and rendering aid. At one time in my life, while I was traveling a lot, I came across a vehicle wreck that looked pretty bad. I got out to check on it, and the person was bleeding very, very severely from their leg. And um, this is the day, like days before cell phones, and also I did what I could for that person, Um, eventually somebody else stopped and basically I said, you gotta, you gotta go somewhere, get, call 911, you know, and whether that person made the call or just, you know, somebody saw a CB radio from a, I don't know, but very soon after that police showed up, very soon after that ambulance showed up, the uh, paramedics took over and I cleaned up best as I could and I went on my way and I don't know whatever happened to that person, but I'm, I, I am fairly confident that they would have definitely died without having some aid rendered. So, like, this can happen anywhere. This absolutely can happen anywhere. And um, it can be mass casualty. It can be an individual. And it doesn't have to have anything to do with a gun. And it is something that I think we could all uh, do with learning more about. Uh, so just my add-on to that one. With that, let's go ahead and uh, I want to wrap up. Uh, I want to talk about this uh, quote of the day and the song of the day together. So before I do my anchor segment, let me uh, just remind you, if you want to support the show and the work that we do, you can always do that just by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. T-S-P, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. You go there, you'll find all the items that I recommend. And if they're there and they're reviewed, that's an honest review. It's an item I bought with my own money. There's maybe two items in the entire catalog of hundreds of items that were given to me, and if so, it's disclosed that this was given to me in, in return for the review. I think there's two out of everything that's there. And uh, so you know you can count on it. Today, I have the same item of the day as I did for yesterday. Again, it's called Bitcoin Money, A Tale of Bitful, Bitville, Discovering Good Money. It is a book for children to learn about blockchain and Bitcoin. And it is also kind of a backhanded way to teach adults about Bitcoin who just don't get it, just don't understand it. If you've ever wanted a Bitcoin for dummies that wasn't as thick as a phone book that would actually make sense to you, get this, read it to kids, and ask the kid to explain it to you because you'll probably get it faster than you will because kids understand this stuff far more intuitively than we do. Um, there were a ton of these that you guys picked up yesterday out of the audience because I don't can't see who bought what, but I can see how many. Um, there were still people buying it today, and I'm like, you know what, this is... This is one of those things I've always wished I had something like this to recommend. Now I know this exists. Um, I'll be reading it to, to, to my grandson uh, probably uh, next week. Uh, and I recommend that you read it to the kids in your life and read it for your own self, especially if you don't understand Bitcoin. Or I think the other people this really helps are people that you understand Bitcoin, but when you try to explain it to somebody that doesn't understand it, you struggle. 
I think part of becoming a good educator, and we should all, like, just like I said, like, we should all work on our skills to be able to save lives and, and medical response and whatever. We should all work on our skill in educating others. Because we're in a shithole of a, of a problem here. Just to be blunt, guys, we really are. We really are. Our world is a flaming, flaming disaster. It really is. And this is going to require becoming better teachers to help bring as many people who at least want to come out of this coma out of this coma. And that involves teaching them about all things that improve their lives, not just a few things. And sometimes people are not ready for Lesson A. Well, let's give them Lesson D. And maybe after they learn Lesson D, we'll come back to Lesson A. So improving that skill set, I think this can help you with that as well. Because if you can teach something to a child, you can teach it to an adult. I promise you, if you can teach something to a child, you can teach it to an adult. You can understand a thing and be un incapable of teaching it to an adult, though. All right. With that, let's go ahead and, and let's talk about this quote of the day. And uh, I, I, I found this quote, and I was like, man, I love this. It's by Ayn Rand, or Ayn Rand, I should say. Um, the question isn't who is going to let me. It's who's going to stop me. And this does feed right into our song of the day today. Song of the day today is by Bachman Turner Overdrive, a.k.a. BTO. And I was talking about another song or two this week that were just great songs to have that car and just old car, like 1970s, 1980s car with a souped-up stereo, six-by-nines in the back and blasting music and hauling ass down the road and having to rein yourself in a little bit so you didn't do something stupid and wreck the car. Um, man, this song is, is right in there, isn't it? Taking care of business, I mean, that is uh, definitely a, a song that probably got me at least close to a ticket at a time or two. And um, But the way this song got on the radar, and then it just fit in with the, the quote really well, is I did a Miyagi Mornings yesterday. If you didn't hear it, you can catch it on the recap uh, Miyagi Mornings recap episode tomorrow that will come out in the podcast feed about the importance of having a routine. And that if you didn't have a routine... Uh, if you were an entrepreneur or whatever, you kind of had to because if you didn't, you wouldn't get anything done. But most people, like, their their work creates their routine. And what that means is because you have a time you have to be at work, you have certain things that are reviewed, you have times you can take breaks, etc., your routine naturally forms around it. But that means your employer designed your routine to their benefit, not yours. But you get that kind of crutch. But if you, if you take things on your own shoulders, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're just an employee with a lot of latitude, or even a conventional employee, and you build your own routine, your own level of responsibility, and you do more than the average and more than you're asked to, you get ahead. And somebody in the comment section of the video on Odyssey put the lyrics in to um, taking care of business. And, you know, the point of the song is that, you know, it's like the lines are like, I love to work at nothing all day. And basically, and, and I'm working overtime, right? Work out, right? Um, the concept is like what you see when you look at a musician or a band like Bachman Turner Overdrive, especially during their heyday, is they're just partying for a living. They're just having fun. But the reality is what you're seeing is somebody work their ass off at something they love. And that requires discipline. 
Like, if you're going to be a musician, even if you're going to be a really famous, really successful musician, you have to show up to do your concerts, and you have to show up, like, sober and capable and well-rested and able to perform, or people are going to stop coming and stop buying your shit. Like, everything that we look at where we think, isn't it great that person can do that, and I wish I could live like that, or whatever, the difference between that person and you is they chose to do it. Now, they might have a talent you don't. Like, I don't care what I do. I'm not going to be up on stage singing for money. I do not have the voice. If I went and took vocal instruction for 20 years or whatever, I do not have the natural talent as a musician to be successful with that. But there's some group of things that we all have that we could build our lives around in a way where to the person looking at us, it looks like we're having fun. And we are having fun, but we're also disciplined in what we're doing And we're making shit happen, and we're living a much better life because we chose to do that. And that's back to Ayn Rand's quote, the question isn't who is going to let me, it is who is going to stop me. And this is another way of saying it is easier or better to ask for forgiveness than for permission. I hear so many people talk about what they would do if somebody would let them. Okay, you know what I hear when, when, when somebody says that, in addition to the fact that it's just flat-out loser language? I, I genuinely hear a person saying these exact words. I am never going to do anything of any significance ever. And I don't think that that has to be an absolute, but I think as long as that person stays in that mindset, it is absolute. Meaning that if they ever do anything that does matter, they're going to have to change their, their, their view. They're going to have to change their attitude. They're going to have to change who they've allowed themselves to become. I was going to say they have to change who they are, but I don't think that's the case. I think that nobody is that person that sits around and says, well, they won't let me, so I'm not going to do it. Either you decide, okay, what I have to do to make that happen is not really what I want to do, so I'm going to pick something else and go do that instead of sit around bitching about this. Or how can I do this? This is how I can do this. This is a sacrifice. Okay, I'm going to go do it. And I think most people, that is who you naturally are. And you might wonder, then, how do we have so many people that aren't that person? K-12 through education is the primary means by which that occurs. There's, there's two big problems with K-12 education as it pertains to this. One is that indoctrination, that programming, that training versus teaching that teaches com compliance And conformity is the primary virtues in life. It is more important that you sit quietly, do what, you, what you're told, and comply with what you're asked to do. Then your grades. The kid with an A average who has a, a, perform, a, a compliance issue is a bigger problem for the school than the kid that does everything they're asked to do and gets C's. Period. Think about that. That's, that's real shit right there. So that compliance, conformity, training is part of why, oh, well, they said I can't do it. Well, just like in school, they said I can't do it. So after 13 years of having that shit programmed in you, you start to act that way. The other side of it is when you put people in large groups, they are going to stratify. There's going to be a top level of kids that, or, or people as far as popularity and things like that, especially among children, especially when you isolate them to narrow age bands, right, where it's all competitive all the time. You're going to have a 10% top level. You're going to have kind of a 
you know, that gets along, and they're okay, and even the top-level kids will talk to them, and you get this stratification, which means you've got a bottom half. And once you're in that bottom half, every tier you go down, the worse your life gets. And if you combine this idea that what somebody else thinks of you matters when it doesn't, okay, with this conformity training, you're going to get a vast majority of people who are going to worry first when they come up with something they want to accomplish, am I allowed to do this? And it takes a lot of work once a person has been conditioned this way to become their true self because the true self is the one that says, this is what I really want. How do I get it? That's the natural innate human instinct. And that's what this song is actually about. It's not about just partying and having a blast as a rock and roll star. That's how it's painted. But I promise you, Bachman Turner Overdrive didn't become the success they became without working hard for it. Working hard at getting better at what they did, working hard at marketing, working hard at finding the right song, working hard at getting the right contract. The amount of work that's in the business that is music is huge. It is much harder for somebody, in my opinion, to become a successful musician than a successful scientist or teacher or architect or what have you. It's much harder. The failure rate's much harder. And then we look at them and say, oh, look, hey, you want, it, you want the same level of success? Get out there and work over time. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast.